0: John 2019, on the evening of that day, Easter day, so you know, probably five (laughs) o'clock. I'm I'm throwing that out there because we meet at five. No one got that thing. I think you took me literally like, really? How do you know that? (laughs) On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Well, eight days later, which is a week later, the the ancient societies counted the day of, we would say seven, they said eight. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put your hand, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him. My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those. And this is Jesus now breaking what they call in cinema, the fourth wall where you address your audience. (laughs) Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So blessed be all to you who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, in the book, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life, that's God's life, in his name. Amen. So, this is the Sunday after Easter. Uh, so St. Thomas Day in some traditions. <laughs> uh, we, we know him as Doubting Thomas. I hear that phrase. You've heard that phrase. We probably refer to and think of him as Doubting Thomas more than anything else, unfortunately for Thomas, because he actually shows up in the Gospels in other places. For example, in John chapter 11, when Jesus says, I'm going to go raise Lazarus from the dead. They're like, you're crazy. The Jews want to kill you. And then Jesus gives some elaborate answer on why it's not going to happen yet and why he needs to go. And then Thomas looks at the other disciples and says, let's go with him so that we may die too. They're <laughs> like, Thomas, like, wow, crazy man. And then in John chapter 14, after Jesus had washed his disciples' feet, he explains to them, look, I am going where you cannot come. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And then he says to them, you know where I am going. And then Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How will we know the way? So he goes from the bull, like, we'll die with you. Like, you make no sense. What do you mean? Um, And then Jesus then answers him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now here's Thomas's third and more infamous statement. Unless I see the holes in his hands and touch them and touch, put my hand in the side, I will not believe. And now he's been dubbed Doubting Thomas. I understand, I guess. Because what we relate to is this doubt in him. We relate to the doubt. But I want us to recast the idea of doubt not necessarily as negative, but as something that is part of a journey. Because sometimes doubt is nothing more than a determination to get our faith within our heart. We understand that this is important, so we don't just blindly or lightly grab that and say, oh, cool, yeah, I believe that. Thomas is someone who understands the ramifications of what the 10 Minus Judas, because he's gone. So the other disciples have told him, wait, he's alive? His doubt is not unbelief. It's determination to seize upon what they're saying with all of his heart, because he knows just how important this is. The 20th century church historian, a Yale professor, Yaroslav Slav Pelikan, said this. So good. If the resurrection of Jesus actually happened, then nothing else really matters. And if the resurrection of Jesus did not happen, then nothing else really matters. Thomas understands this. Wait, wait. If you say he appeared to you, then nothing matters. This is all that matters. But if he was just an apparition, or you guys were losing sleep and seeing things, I mean, I wasn't there. I don't know how this worked. And so if he didn't really rise, if what you're saying is not true, and he indeed is dead, I'm going to continue in my despair because nothing else matters. Life doesn't matter. What I do with my life doesn't matter. Thomas understands what Professor Pelican said. This is why he has, if you want to call it doubt, this moment of hesitation. I would therefore prefer to call him not doubting Thomas, but determined Thomas. What we see in him is a determination to know the power of the resurrection of Christ and to make it his own. Like Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, I seek to share in the sufferings of Christ that I may attain to the resurrection and make it my own. It just came to me, so I hope I quoted that right. But it's very close to that. So Thomas knew. He knew, so he ha- He knew that how much this meant, so he has to know himself. So for us, for us, what we have with Thomas Sunday is we have what the pattern of after Easter looks like. It's not like okay, oh, cool, cool, Easter's like every April, March, you know, and woo, big celebration, we're done. Now we have the post Easter hangover, and we wait till Christmas. Um, no. What Thomas Sunday tells us, what determined Thomas informs us, is he is a symbol for how we live every single after Easter Sunday. Every single after Easter Sunday is a confrontation with the resurrected Christ, and do I believe this happened, and will I live like nothing else matters, or do I unbelieve this? and live like nothing else matters. That's what we must confront. That's what we must confront tonight and every day hereafter. Is the resurrected Lord indeed the resurrected Lord? Or is this just something we celebrate once a year because February has Valentine's Day and March has Patty's Day and April needs something? Okay. So... Let's start with this. Doubt is not unbelief. Doubt is not unbelief. Some of us identify with doubting Thomas. Or determined Thomas. And we need to clarify that there's a big difference in the Bible between doubt and between unbelief. Doubt is a journey. Doubt is where you want to understand, but you haven't yet arrived. That's Thomas right here. He's not pushing away the possibility. He wants to understand. He's just not there. That's doubt. Unbelief is not a journey, unbelief is a destination. Unbelief is when you have understood the journey and you've made your decision. I'm no longer wrestling with this. I am choosing to not believe. That's unbelief. We see this powerfully demonstrated with the Israelites in the Bible. So we, at the prayer hour, read Numbers chapter 13 and 14, where Israel is taken to the promised land, and they rebel in unbelief. We don't want it. We don't believe that God can do this. The people are too big. We're going to not do it. Well, they're going to be our model. So unbelief, there's, there's three ways that unbelief works. First, is, it's hubris or pride. It's hubris. Hubris, hubris, pride. It's this, it's this mentality that I refuse to receive reality as it's given to me, and I prefer to choose my own reality. That's unbelief. Christ, the resurrected one, is presented to me, but instead of accepting it because it was handed to me, I would prefer to choose my own reality. I don't want him to be resurrected bodily. I'd prefer if this is more of a spiritual symbolism, or maybe he really didn't rise. He's just dead, 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 dead. Or Christ wasn't even a historical figure at all. That's unbelief. That's when you're choosing to recreate reality as you want it to be. And that is the height of pride. When I am the one who controls what is. Well, ironically, um, Pharaoh was this guy. Let my people go. No. okay, we'll show you ten times that God's pretty much more powerful than you are. Each time Pharaoh's like, no, 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 no. And the Bible tells us that he continued. His heart got harder and harder and harder. He was a person of unbelief, but here's the here's the really ironic thing: is that the people of Israel adopt his hardness of heart, so they get to the promised land. We will not go in. Here's how Hebrews chapter three verse seven puts it. It's I'm actually going to read quite a few verses. So if you want to go to Hebrews three, that's Hebrews three verse seven. He has this whole commentary. Our Preacher in Hebrews, on this moment when Israel rebels against God. Hebrews 3, verse 7, Hebrews is believed to be a sermon, so our preacher says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and here he's quoting Psalm chapter 95, which is one of the royal psalms. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, God is speaking, and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation. And said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So now our preacher comments. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, Thomas Sunday is our everyday post-Easter experience. We must exhort one another lest we become hardened in heart. We must be like Thomas, determined to see afresh and experience the resurrection of our Lord. But he continues, he continues. Verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, He's quoting now, again, Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, who, 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 who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter the promised land because of unbelief. It's hardness of heart. It's rebellion. It's hubris. It's pride against God. Second, unbelief is also heresy. Unbelief is born through the labors of heresy. In Numbers, uh, no, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, Moses is recounting Israel's rebellion in the wilderness, and this is what he says. He says to the people, reminding them, you would not go into the promised land, but you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God, and you murmured in your tents and said, "Because the Lord hated us, He has brought us up out of the land of Egypt. Okay, this is so significant, I have to backtrack so you hear it. Moses, 40 years later, they're about to enter the promised land for real now. He's reminding them of the rebellious fathers and mothers. And he said, they refused to enter the promised land because they murmured in their hearts and said they had false beliefs. They had heresy. They said, because God hated us, he brought us up out of the land of Egypt. Whoa! Talk about forgetting everything! But contrary, Joshua and Caleb, while Israel was rebelling, in Numbers 14, verse 8, Joshua and Caleb run among the people, they tear their clothes, and they say this, If the Lord delights in us, if he loves us, if he has pleasure in us, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us. They were combating the heresy from the beginning. Joshua and Caleb already knew the people were saying God hates us. He's doing things for our bad. And Joshua and Caleb have to stand there like good Orthodox Christians and give them correct belief and say, no, he delights in us. He loves us. He will give us the land. This is why he brought us out of Egypt. But see, when we have wrong beliefs about God, it will inevitably lead us to unbelief. If you listen carefully to an atheist's complaints, you will quickly realize that the God they disbelieve in does not look very close to the God you believe in. I've read them. I've read uh, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens. I've seen interviews with the Big Four talking together as they're drinking their whiskey, like they're so cool. That's what I was thinking that hit me. i like, oh, that's such a blatant stab. i like, we're not the people who are scared of whiskey. <laughs> that was weird. Anyways, they're all talking about their, and it, it, what, what was so quick, t- if you look, I mean, you've probably heard it before. What you quickly recognize is what they rail and can't believe in is some weird version of God that you don't believe in either. Yeah. Heresy, improper views of God will lead you to the path of unbelief. So we must be careful. This is why teaching matters. Yes, you can love God and like follow him on your own, but there is a need for instruction in our lives that we see God rightly and therefore don't fall into some sort of unbelief like the Israelites. And then third, unbelief. So we've looked at it. It's hubris, it's um, heresy, and it also comes from hearsay. Very close to heresy, isn't it? (laughs) Hearsay. Hearsay is when you basically believe what other people pass on or what you collect from here or there. It's like this terrible patch uh, patch quilt quilt made of little patches. What's the word patchwork quilt? Yeah, patchwork quilt. That's unraveling, and all the patches because it was hastily put together by oh, I like this and I like that and I saw this on social media and on the internet and I found this in this cult and then this uh, one part of Christianity. And you kind of hastily put it together and create your own like belief system. Well, this big hearsay is really bad way to do it. And unfortunately, most of the beliefs in our world are hearsay beliefs, especially the Christianity that's presented. It's all, well, we know what they say is this. Do you, are you sure? Because that's not, that's not, why did you get that bozo on that interview? Because that's not what, hearsay leads to unbelief. So that's, that's unbelief. Thomas, is not in unbelief, he's in doubt. Which remember, doubt is, it's an expression of determination. And look at, Thomas is the opposite of unbelief in each of these ways. We don't see hubris in Thomas. We see honesty and humility. Rather than saying, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna shape reality the way I want it to be, Thomas says, wait, Really? But, okay, but I'm really, I'm needing, I'm needing some help here. That's what he's saying. He says, unless I put my finger in those, I need some help here. Because I, I don't have, I don't have what I need to believe this right now. I want to understand and behold Christ and grasp Christ. And we see humility in Thomas because he sticks around. He sticks around with them for a week. So if I'm, you know, if I have unbelief and I'm Thomas, I'm, a, Thomas, I can't, you won't believe what happened while you're at Trader Joe's, Christ appeared. And Thomas is like, oh, come on, you guys are stupid, you guys, I knew you guys were going to go off the deep end after all this, I'm out of here. Instead, Thomas says, wait, wait a minute, his determination, his doubt, he's going to press in with this, he hangs out with them for a week. Okay, I'm going to hang out and I'm, I'm going to hang with this and see what happens. That's humility and that's honesty. There's a genuine heart here searching. Thomas is not falling for heresy. He is wrestling with orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is the straight way is what it means. It's, it's the true teaching. So he here's what Thomas is thinking through. He's thinking, okay, if the word became flesh and dwelt among us, then I know that a resurrection that doesn't occur in the flesh, means nothing. He's, he's, he's thinking this through. If Jesus was who he told us he was, representing the Father to us, God in human flesh, then if he didn't rise from the dead in flesh, then his resurrection is nothing. They just saw a vision. They had some sort of a hallucination or just some sort of visitation from the other world, from the, the realm of the dead. Christ was just floating around in shul, kind of like when Samuel... Um, No, Saul conjures up Samuel from the dead. You remember that? He conjures him up and has a conversation with him. It's kind of like that. Like, okay, if that's the way they met Christ, absolutely no! I will not receive that as good news. Because Christ is dead. All it means is that the place of the dead can yak to the people that are alive. I need a Savior who's risen in the flesh as we knew him. He is wrestling with orthodoxy. That's why he says, unless I can touch his wounds, I don't want a phantom. I don't want a vision. I want the resurrected Lord in my midst because if I can touch his wounds and if he's actually physical, then this changes everything. So he's wrestling with a right view of what they're telling him. And third, he refuses hearsay. He refuses hearsay. I know you say that. And although you cheated me, Peter, when we played cards the other week, I still think you're a man of integrity. (laughs) I know what you guys are telling me, but I want to seek first-hand experience. Because if we want to announce the resurrection, we must experience the resurrection and not a minute before. We must be those who, like Thomas, seek the firsthand experience. Then we are qualified to go and announce the resurrected Lord to all nations. I think this is the part that's admirable about Thomas, is this. I hear what you're saying, I just need to know experientially. I need to confess my Lord, my God. And that's that's admirable. Now, Jesus does tell us, look, blessed are those who don't see and believe. And so obviously it's best if we have the kind of faith that can hear the word of God and receive it into our lives like the seed that falls on the good soil and grows fruit. Great, that's ideal. But not everybody's there. Not everybody just receives it that way. There is a sort of determination. They must push through this journey of doubt, and they just have to know. Well, Thomas can become a sample for us in four ways. What Thomas' determination teaches us. So first, he teaches us that we live in a symbolic world. We live in a symbolic world. This one's a little out there. It's a little harder to grab our minds around because we are moderns. We have a hard time understanding the ancient world because the Enlightenment changed the way we use our minds and look at the world. But what we learn from Thomas is that we live in a symbolic world. And Thomas, well, here's what we mean. Like, okay, so God's world, God's world is symbolic, which means it is determined by truth. But humanity's world is historic, which means it's determined by facts. Now, does truth contain fact? Yes. Does fact contain truth? Not always. Because what truth is, is it's greater than fact. If you want to think about it like this, truth is the very substance of something, but facts is like the shadow that outlines it. Oh, I know it's there. And you're, you're drawing it out and saying, see, it definitely has an an acute angle right there. And then it breaks 90 degrees that way and it curves around. And as my son said the other day, look, dad, a parallelogram. I was like, what, what is that? (laughs) And there's a parallelogram. And you know, like facts look at the shadow and they can articulate the degree of darkness versus the light and the shape of it. And they can determine this is what the substance must be. But truth just says, That's great, but that's not it. Your your details about the shadow might be right, but truth is beyond this. And this is where symbol comes in. A symbolic world is a world of truth, and the way you explain truth to people is not always through facts. Truth is not always discovered through forensic science. Frank is a detective. Forensic science, forensic facts. It leads him to facts, but it does not lead him to existential truth. Thomas teaches us that the world, God's world, is more than just the stuff we can put together and reason through. That it's a symbolic world. A symbolic world teaches us what life means. A factual world tells us how life happens. In other words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You can read Genesis 1 through a factual lens, and many Christians do that. But I fear that over the last hundred years of doing that, we've actually shrunk the meaning of the passage. Yes, he created the world, but I don't think the, Genesis 1 was trying to say, here is the forensic evidence of how we did it. Genesis 1 is showing us what it means that God created the heavens and the earth. For more on that, go see our teachings on Genesis 1. Do Go into that in great detail. This is what it means that we have a creator. That's what the Bible is trying to give us. Truth, so much more nourishing. Truth gives us wisdom and purpose. Facts just give us information and the labor we must do to keep up on it. Thomas understands that he lives in a symbolic world. He's not going to the tomb. He's not interviewing people. Well, are you sure? Was it? Was it did he kind of come out... What did you say? It was, was it 12.01 a.m. or was it 6.01 a.m.? Like which was it, sunrise or vigil? Like what was or or wait, Mary, you said there was one angel, you said there's two angels. He didn't go into that. Thomas was waiting for the Lord to reveal himself in a different way altogether. And we're not to approach God in the same way. We're not to approach him saying, God, I need all the facts to line up. We're to approach him and say, Lord, if you exist. Manifest yourself to me. And that's why the best evidence for God is the testimonies of Christians. The stories of what God does in your life, in your life, in your life. They said, we saw the risen Lord testimony. Thomas says, I want that testimony. They didn't say, well, his hair was the same shade, the same length, and we have, uh, we have tape right here. This is where he stood. You can see a little imp- impression on the carpet. I mean, it was better an hour ago, but it, you could tell someone was standing there, and it's not Peter's feet because his feet are too big, and it's not, uh, Thomas, it's not James's feet because his feet are too wide, and blah, 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 blah. They didn't go through that. Thomas wanted to experience the Lord in truth, not just in fact. Um, and we must be open to experiencing the Lord in a more experiential way and not just in, okay, well, I need to make sure that all the world events are lining up toward Revelation. I need to make sure that all these documentaries affirm the historicity of these parts of the Bible. I need to make sure, if that's what your faith rests in, I don't know that you experience the risen Lord. You're experiencing facts about your faith, but you're not experiencing the truth of what God is inviting you to live in. We must go beyond those things. Second, Thomas teaches us that doubt's okay. But if you have doubts, why don't you hang out and see what happens? Thomas does that, as we had said. He hangs out for a week because belief is birthed, not in the the accumulation of facts, but belief is birthed through the labor of commitment and loyalty. I'm going to stick with this that's when you begin to experience Christ. It's when you stick with the people. You stick with what's going on. I'm not sure I understand this, but keep going, keep going. It will begin to make sense. It will begin to materialize in your life. Books are not always the most helpful answer for your doubts. In fact, they can actually just raise more questions. Because all books are going to give you is forensic evidence. But a prayer life a receiving of the scriptures through preaching and reading, taking communion, these are the symbolic ways that God is giving himself to us. And this is how we get to know him. Third lesson Thomas teaches us is that we cannot take hold of Christ without his taking hold of us. (laughs) This is the dangerous part. You want to be a determined Thomas? You want to behold and take hold of his wounds and touch it and see, and I know my Lord, the risen Christ, this changes everything. You want to? Okay, you want to take hold of Christ? He will take hold of you. But this is not for your bad. Because here's the thing. Unbelief always prefers the status quo. Christ is risen. No. Keep the world the way it's always been. Why is that bad news? The dead come to life. This is expanding reality. This is expanding the possibilities. This is saying, I'm not made to live just one short life, and I'm made to live forever. How is that bad news? No, don't change things. Unbelief always shrinks existence. It always shrinks our lives. But if we take hold of Christ and his resurrection, he will take hold of us and he will stretch us and grow us and use us and expand us and take us, break us, bless us, and multiply us like the feeding of the 5,000 in ways that we cannot comprehend. How does this happen for Thomas? Oh, did you know church history has a rich tradition on Thomas? Thomas is actually known as the apostle to India. And there is a church in India, not a church building, but like a church movement called the People of Thomas, I think they are, something like that. Thomas was highly influential. Here's what church history teaches us about Thomas. It's, it, it teaches that he took the gospel east. So we know the ones that took it west, because well, we're a lot of us are from European countries or from countries in the west, like uh, Latin American countries, and we're western people. We don't really know what happened in the east. Thomas. Thomas takes it. He takes the gospel to the east, to Syria, Persia, Mesopotamia, Parthia, Ethiopia, and climaxing in India. There are even some traditions that he made it to China. Although, in my research, it didn't seem like there was enough proof of that. But India, there seems to be a lot of evidence that Thomas was in India. Woo! So, I gotta take hold of Christ. He took hold of Thomas and made him, the, Paul's the apostle to the west, right? He took it to Rome. Thomas, the apostle to the east. Peter, the apostle to the Jews. Uh, the tradition also says that Thomas, and of course, going where he did, it, the tradition says that he met the Magi and baptized them. How cool is that? Three kings, well, proverbial three kings, probably 3,000 or so, but they were baptized by Thomas. And then um, in India, he was actually martyred in India July 3rd, 72 AD. July 3rd, 72 AD, he was martyred because he converted the wife and the son of a prefect in India, and he didn't like it. So he imprisoned Thomas, he tortured Thomas, and then he pierced Thomas with five spears, and that's how Thomas died. Here's what St. John Chrysostom our great fourth century preacher. By the way, you hear his name a lot. Chrysostom means gold mouthed. So John the gold mouthed. This is what he is what he said. He said Thomas, being once weaker in the faith than the other apostles, toiled through the grace of God more bravely, more zealously, and tirelessly than them all so that he went preaching over nearly all the earth, not fearing to proclaim the word of God to savage nations. John Chrysostom gives Thomas high praise because he was determined to go through his doubt. He toiled more than the others. He was stretched and grown more than the others. We desire to take hold of Christ? Good. He's going to take hold of you. And he will use you like he is Thomas. Fourth lesson we learn from Thomas Announcing the resurrection means experiencing the resurrection. You want to go proclaim him to the nations? We must put our finger in the holes of the hands and our hand in the side and proclaim my Lord and my God. Or you're just going to be a talking head. We have tons of those in our country. So here's here's what Thomas Sunday teaches us for moving on in the post-Easter world. Faith grows by faithful, frequent practice. It isn't that Wayne is more gifted with faith than Gloria, for example. I don't know if that's true. It isn't that some of us just have it and others don't. There might be a degree of that. It does seem like some people just believe more easily than others. But there's a whole lot of complexities going on there. Ultimately, your faith is not just a naturally inherent gift. I'm just going to kind of float through life and I'm going to be an amazing saint. No, that's not how it works. Faith grows. Faith grows by faithful, frequent practice. So from our text... We're going to see how that works. Faith grows by frequent, faithful practice. Four ways to exercise this. Four ways to grow faithful, frequent faith. Number one, weekly and public Sunday gatherings. Weekly, public, Sunday gatherings. Good job, everyone, tonight. Good job. You can check that one, at least for tonight. There's more to come. There's a lot of... There's a lot of... We underestimate this one a lot. That's why we're starting with this one. There is a lot of questioning, what is church for today? Because... I've gone through this myself. Because... Well, imagine that. I don't have my phone on me. What's new? Um, (laughs) On our phones we have we have podcasts and access to any preacher in the world and so i I look at this and I get depressed i'm like, "Wow, why does anyone need to go to church It's all right here. these guys are good like how can I ever yep they're good they're good like i'm so you know I'm somewhere way down on if iTunes published the list for that far. I'm probably on number. They do that. Actually, they have a list of like who's ranking where. And uh, anyways, I'm probably down there on 3,289, you know, something. Okay. Anyways, but like it's, we can get to this and COVID didn't help. And part of this, this was a struggle. This was a struggle for me when we, when, when the whole world went through that three month mandatory shutdown before we started opening up again, Um, we got to put it online and we're online right now. So there's a struggle with this, like, on one hand, yes, okay, we want to make church available to people because we can't be together, but on the other hand, what are we saying about church? It's an individualized experience. You can do it where you're at. I don't believe that's so. Where was Thomas? Where was Thomas when Jesus first appeared to the others? Not with them. He was somewhere else. Maybe getting maple butter at Trader Joe 's, or maybe watching watching the new upstart other Christians online, or where we don't know where he was. What matters is that he wasn't with the gathering on that Sunday night. Yeah, we don't want to underestimate this because. Thomas then receives Christ. He sees Christ the next Sunday when they're gathered. Here's, this is so important. Here's what Matthew Henry said in the 17th century. 17th century England, I think it was English. They had no problem getting people to church back then. Um, Everyone to church is what you did. He found this so important that he said even to a culture that wasn't questioning church, he said this. Those who know what they lose—let oh, me just—those okay. who know not what they lose, who carelessly absent themselves from the stated solemn assembly of Christians. Let me reread that. I messed that up bad. Those know not what they lose, who carelessly absent themselves from the stated solemn assemblies of Christians. You don't know what you lose. But observe, Christ did not appear to Thomas for his satisfaction, till he found Thomas in society with the rest of his disciples. Because he would countenance, or Christ would appear, make his face appear, the meetings of Christians and ministers, for there will he be in the midst of them. Matthew Henry makes it very clear that Christ did not appear outside of their gathering to these 11 disciples. And here's, here's actually something I have found a blessing, is some of you guys get this. Some of you guys get this. Because since COVID, I've received a number of people who will just update me on where they're at. Unbeckoned. I haven't been around for a couple months or weeks because of this. You know what that tells me? It tells me that they cherish the gathering of saints together on Sundays enough that they reverence it to explain their ache in missing it. That's fantastic. I was initially uncomfortable with that. COVID changed some of this, but I was initially super uncomfortable following up with people and stuff, and they missed because I was raised, my first taste of ministry, I was raised in a church that made lack of attendance a guilt trip. Where were you? They were always paranoid that people were going to another church or betraying them. And so I learned really quick from there, don't make a big deal about people's absence. But then COVID happened, and I think a lot of us actually appreciated making a big deal about her absence. And some of you took that upon your own selves. And I, I learned to get more comfortable with that than appreciate that. I think what we see expressed in this is a family that understands the importance of frequent weekly public Sunday gatherings. And COVID has taught some people you don't need it. It's taught others you can't replace it. Thomas teaches us you can't replace it. So how much are we missing by choosing isolation over fellowship and worship? I don't know. You can't quantify it. You don't know what you're missing is the point. How much are we missing by choosing to gather only on occasion? Only on an occasional basis. There are some who think church is only when there's nothing else going on. No, I understand. Things happen. I totally get that. I'm not, I don't, I really don't sit here and take attendance. I just occasionally say, I haven't seen so-and-so for a while. I wonder if they're okay. But I'm not like, well, we know that they prioritize football, apparently. <laughs> it's not football season anyways. The angels are doing well, though, by the way. So if you want to, Lord have mercy. Okay. All right. We got to get moving here. Um, the worship team, <laughs> we actually started right on, oh, okay, okay, sorry. Okay. Number two. Uh, How do we build this faithful, frequent practice of faith? So, by the gathering of public Sunday gatherings. But second, handling Holy Communion. This has really spoken to me since the regathering after COVID. Thomas, in here, uh, verse 26 Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Again, the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Thomas, I invite you to handle my body, my flesh, my wounds. Every Sunday, we partake in Holy Communion together. We get to handle in our hands the wounds of Christ, the flesh and the blood of Christ through the bread and the wine. St. Cyril of Alexandria, his 5th century, he said this on his commentary on this text. He said that Christ visits us and appears to us all both invisibly and also visibly. Invisibly, he appears as God, but also visibly in the body. He allows us to touch his holy flesh and gives us thereof. For through the grace of God, we are admitted to partake of the holy communion, receiving Christ into our hands to the intent that we may firmly believe that he did in truth raise up the temple of his body. Luke's gospel also has something very similar. You might remember the two on the road to Emmaus. Christ appears to them; They don't recognize him. It's getting late. They sit down. Christ breaks bread in their midst. And it says then, this is Luke 24, 30, When he was at table with them, he took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. Those four verbs are the same four verbs Luke uses when it's the last supper with his disciples. Took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. Same pattern. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. In the handling of the bread, the flesh of Christ, they recognized him. How about that? Now, we know that the bread wasn't his literal flesh, because he was literally right there at the table, right? So as I say this, I understand. There's maybe a little squirming. It's like, oh, here we go. Transubstantiation. No. And if you don't know that, it is it's good for you. Just keep it out of your mind. Transubstantiation, it's a doctrine of the Catholic Church that teaches that the the bread and the wine literally transform into the actual body and blood of Christ. It's, It's bread, it's wine. But here's what it's not, and here's my point. What it's not is just a cracker and juice. It is so much more than that. It is not just a reminder. Oh, let's have a snack. I confess, When COVID first locked us down, you can see how I changed because Pastor Dave made fun of me for this for quite a while. I said, let's take communion together. This was over online. Only the worship team was in the back row. Everyone else was at home. I said, let's take communion together. Grab whatever you got. I don't care if it's broccoli or water. Let's take communion. And he made fun of me. Good for you. Because... We shouldn't take it just as an action to just remember Christ. There is something that happens in the body of Christ as believers when we together take what we have designated to be an invitation for the symbolic presence of Christ in our midst. Yes, he's in our midst invisibly, but we, with the bread and wine, remember that he is also in us as we hold him and partake of him because the communion of Christ is just that it's our unity together communing with him he in us and us in him and us in each other and with each other because we're all part of the same table with all the saints who've gone before us this is the holy communion and and thomas handled it and saint cyril of alexandria points out look this is nothing short of what we do every week we handle the wounds of christ and so as we take communion regularly as we gather together regularly we are building our faith we are moving through doubt by determination to experience the resurrected lord this is what we're doing so we don't take it lightly we don't take it and go dine and dash we've had a few of those in the past Oh, it's the end of the service. They take it and they go out the door. If you ever had to do that because you had to, Lord forgives you. I forgive you. But they'll not make that a habit. This communion is not something we just chug. Third, prioritizing Christ-centered worship. Prioritizing Christ-centered worship. Verse 19, you saw on the first Easter night, um, Jesus stood among them. There they are. And just in the middle. Whoa, where did he come from? In their midst, in the middle of them. Then in verse 26, the same thing. The doors were locked, but then he shows up among them. There it is. Came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So both times, Christ was in the center. So our worship must be Christ centered. Okay that means it's not sermon centered that means it's not worship music centered that means it's not making everybody feel comfortable centered that means it's not entertaining everyone centered it means it's christ centered that when we gather for prayer at 4 it's christ centered that when the worship team leads us in song that it's christ centered not Richard centered, Sandy centered, Sonia centered, drum kit centered. None of that. All the others, I don't forget you. It's it's Christ centered. It's uh, that when we preach the Word, it's Christ centered. Some have taken this so far, and it may actually be a point here that they believe you should not preach anything outside of the New Testament on Sunday because we must keep Christ at the center. Old Testament teachings were later in the week for educating the saints. That might, there might be something to that, even as we're embarking on Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. But here's the, here's true faithful Bible teaching, what the early church did, because the early church had the Old Testament. That's what they had. We're finding Christ in the Old Testament. Everything we do must be Christ-centered. I pray continually. Actually, um, Moses, Moses said this. He pleaded with God. Lord, this is um, Exodus 33. He says, Lord, if you if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here, Sinai, to the promised land. Do not bring us up from here at all. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not that you go among with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people in the face of the earth? Lord, if your presence is in our midst, don't move us anywhere. And if Christ's presence isn't in our midst on Sunday nights, why are we gathering? This is This is poor entertainment. So Moses then prays in chapter 34, verse 9. If I have now found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, even though we are a stiff necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for an inheritance. We prayed that every week up until Lent. Then we moved towards other longer confession. Um, But we're going to reinstitute that into our prayer hour when we hit Pentecost because. We need the presence of Christ in our midst. This is why we gather. This is also why I think Holy Week was such a blessing. We centered Christ in everything we did. So, Brandon, why didn't you teach so long? I know. Um, During our stay in Arizona this last week, um, driving, we went to an ostrich farm. (laughs) Uh, driving on the way, I saw this billboard. And on the left side of it, it had a picture of someone in their car and it said, Bored? And on the right side of it, it had the name and logo of a church and said, Come worship with us. While I understand the heart and cannot condemn people who are trying their best to share Christ with others, that's a terrible association. What does this say to the worldling? Oh, church is for my entertainment. Church is for my pleasure. (sighs) Lord have mercy on us because even Sunday night Bible study and Calvary Chapel Twin Peaks has been guilty of trying to do more than center on Christ. Let's entertain them with great preaching. I've been guilty of that. As I have in the past sought ways to be more entertaining. I've confessed to the Lord, he knows. You can pray for me. <laughs> we need to worship that's Christ centered, not consumer centered. The world treats us like consumers, but here we are Christians, not consumers. All right, finally, confessing our faith out loud with creeds or scriptures. This is how we grow faith, faithfully and frequently, confessing out loud our faith with creeds or a scripture. Now, this is something the church has always done, except Calvary Chapel for some reason, is confess creeds publicly. Um, there's the Apostles' Creed. We actually did that on Easter at our prayer hour, and I quoted part of it during the sermon. Um, there's the Nicene Creed, which is the most famous of them all, because it, eradicate a lot of heresy and then there's the Athanasius Creed uh, which I quoted from on our East, or Christmas message um, these are the three historical and early creeds that are still confessed to this day why are they so important and powerful? because they bring to you the gospel in a powerful, compact memorizable nutshell I encourage you to read them learn them, pray them even they're easy to find I can help you if you need help, but alternatively, I shouldn't say alternatively because this isn't. I don't mean that secondarily. I mean another way to do this, just as valid and if not more valid, is take the creeds given to us in Scripture. There's actually a few of them. Philippians two verses five through eleven is believed to be the earliest Christian creed or hymn in existence predating Paul as he wrote it. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but took upon him the form of a servant and becoming obedient to death, even death on a... I think I skipped a part. I don't actually have it memorized, but that one, you know that one. Richard taught on it. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. We recited that all through Epiphany for those six weeks leading up to Lent. We recited um, Christ is... It's just a beautiful hymn about Christ and who he is. Read Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Powerful, powerful declaration of Christ and his preeminence. First, tonight at the prayer hour, we did um, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Look, I tell you a mystery. We shall all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And there he talks about the imperishable, putting on... The perishable, putting on the imperishable, and the corruptible, putting on the incorruptible. And it talks about what our resurrection life will look like. And then he, at the end, climatically says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? First Timothy 3, verse 16, one of the shortest ones in the Bible. um, Basically says, Christ came down, died, and went back up. (laughs) And then there's the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer Matthew 6. It is a creed. I don't know if you realize that, but we pray the Lord's Prayer constantly because it teaches us how to see the world. Our Father in heaven. It starts with our Father, our Father, our Father. And then when it gets to the things we need, we're coming to that Father and saying, it's through you we get these things. This is a whole orientation of our world around our Father in heaven. And Psalm 23, which we prayed at the close of our prayer hour. The Lord is my shepherd. It's also a creed telling us who God is to us. These things are important to get into us. And by saying them out loud together, can also help strengthen our faith. So yes, privately, but how great to also do it out loud as a people. So those are four ways we can build our faith. So announcing the resurrection means experiencing the resurrection. We need this affirmation weekly. That's why we do this. So in the words of Professor Pelican, if the resurrection of Jesus actually happened, there is nothing else. The nothing else really matters but if the resurrection of Jesus did not actually happen, then nothing else really matters. Let's pray. My Lord and my God, give us hearts to believe, eyes to behold.